Services, Criminal Behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. is Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host, Timothy Joseph. Way back, not too long ago, December 17th, 2020, I had the honor of being a host for a webinar on novel uses of applied behavior analysis. And this was a part two. We'd had an earlier one uh, in July of 2020. In this one, we had two great speakers, uh, one of which was uh, Joe Cotilli, who was present. Uh, he'd been interviewed earlier on criminal behaviorology. I'll put the link for that podcast. And also the additional of uh, Michael Weinberg. And uh, we had a little bit of our typical technical problems at the beginning, so I wasn't able to uh, put in Joe's introduction, uh, but I'm going to do that shortly before we uh, play the podcast, before we play the webinar for you. This uh, entire webinar is also in video format. It's on a, uh, our YouTube channel, and I'm going to just go ahead and post the link for that if you want to see it in video form and you can see all the slides. We're going to try and have the slides up uh, available on a uh, on a site that you can download them. And uh, just go ahead and listen. Uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy program this time around, but I wanted you to get the full benefit. This was Novel Uses of Applied Behavior Analysis Part 2. And the first speaker was Joseph Cotilli, and he spoke about uh, behaviorist in instruction and curriculum-based reading, adding instructional consultation to your repertoire. Joseph Cotilli is a licensed psychologist, licensed counselor, and board-certified behavior analyst. His first master's degree is in counseling, and his second master's degree is in applied behavior analysis through special education. His PhD is in school psychology, and he has a postdoctoral master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. He has taught behavior analysis and special education courses for over 20 years through four different universities. He was the founding editor for seven behavior analytic journals, which he later sold to the American Psychological Association. Presently, he is co-owner of Behavior Analysis and Therapy Partners, which services children in five counties in Pennsylvania and one county in New Jersey. When not working, he writes cyberpunk and biopunk novels and screenplays with his daughter. So we'll go ahead and start with... Uh, with Joe's portion of the webinar, and then uh, I'm I'm able to do a uh, to do a uh, introduction right there in the webinar for Michael Weinberg. So go ahead and uh, 
enjoy the uh, enjoy the webinar. If you choose to look it up in video format, that would be great. If you have any topics that you think we could cover in future webinars, please let us know. Right now, let's go ahead and get on with the show. So uh, this is an area with a long history for behavior analysts, and I'm hoping that this workshop gives you the foundational groundwork to actually move into that area and feeling uh, somewhat successful. I provide some links and some articles uh, in case you want to uh, further your reading in the area. So what am I hoping to do? I really want to review the history of behaviorists and instruction. I want to review the inter interventions they created and their effectiveness. I wanted to then do a little bit of a review of this idea of curriculum-based measurement. In, in particular, I want to be able to give you an idea of some of the research that supports curriculum-based measurement. And I want to give you a sense of the idea of why rate is the best unit for measurement to use uh, for curriculum-based measurement, not uh, just accuracy as was in the old curriculum-based assessment procedures. Uh, I want to be able to assess students using the rating curriculum, but I'm just going to give you kind of an overview of how to do that, and hopefully enough detail where you can uh, determine if your students are frustrated and structural or functioning at a mastery level. Also, as I do the talk, I want to give some hints at how to do this online uh, if necessary to uh, ensure that you could actually do this as part of your practice while the COVID's going on. All right, so let's go back in time. It was 1960, and the U.S. had two pushes back in 1960 that really led it to start thinking, how can we move science into education? And the first big push there was the USSR, the Union of Soci Soviet Socialistic Republic, that's what it was called, today it's Russia, uh, had launched Sputnik. And this was kind of a shock to the world they had beat us into space. space. The Sputnik was the first space satellite. And then at the same time, the U.S. was launching this thing it called the War on Poverty. Lyndon B. Johnson said, we're going to take a war on poverty and we're going to defeat poverty. That was his goal. So why were these things important? Well, science became important catching the USSR. Think about that space race and how much of an influence it had for training people to think scientifically and us as a society to advance through the processes of science. And then one, the second one, uh, the war on poverty said, well, one of the most important ways to get out of poverty is to make sure people are educated. So behaviorists rushed into education. Now, don't get the idea we went alone. There were lots of types of psychology at the time that were going into education. It wasn't just us. There was the high scopes model, which was a model that was built on a developmental curriculum model from Piaget. But indeed, many educational psychologists emerged to design curriculum from a host of different backgrounds, psychoanalytic, behavioral, uh, some problem solving training backgrounds. Uh, so these were the emerging paradigms. Um, educational psychology, I should say, is a field differs from school psychology and that school psychology is sort of the clinical aspects in the school. They go in, they assess the individual child, they test the individual child, they group, do groups and place the individual child. Our educational psychologists are more in line with what's the overall school curriculum 
how the grades connect, how do they all link to each other. So se several behavioral programs did emerge uh, in what was then being termed Head Start and in the general education. They were coming out of these educational psychology programs. So what were some of the behaviorists who moved very rapidly into education? Well, Don Beer was a behavior analyst who had a lot of uh, focus on young kids, mostly kids from lower poverty backgrounds. Uh, and he did work on designing curriculum. This is an early paper of his from with Montrose Wolf. And I think that this is actually a good chapter if you want to give a chapter to yourself or students to read on the process. Carl Beiter was also another big name. Uh, he combined his work with Ziggy Engelman and they created a model known as direct instruction. And we're going to talk a lot about direct instruction. I gave you three articles, four articles there from Engelman uh, to look up and read if you want to start seeing how there's a direct instruction approach and what were the things that went into designing the curriculum, task analyzing the curriculum. Uh, Ganji was the other person from a behavioral bank who was really interested in principles of instructional design. I gave you one or uh, two articles and a book from him in case you want to read and refresh yourself. Now, these are all things at the early point when behaviors were rushing in. What were the thoughts on instruction? That's why if you look, they're pretty much all from the late 60s, early 70s, except the Kerlin and uh, Biter article, uh, which is um, a 96 article that just reviews the effectiveness of direct instruction. All right. So what did the behavioral models look like? And let's talk first about this model I just told you about called the direct instruction model. Now, the direct instruction model, and I want to cover this on the next three slides. It's essentially a teacher-directed approach. It often uh, employ, employs a call and response procedure, my turn, your turn. So the teacher calls out a question, the kids respond back. It breaks the students into small groups and an ability tracks those groups, which wasn't very popular in the late 60s, early 70s. And it's continued in educational system to move away from ability tracking. Now, not from a teaching perspective, but that's more of a social perspective, not to lock kids out from being socially integrated to each other. From a teaching perspective, it makes total sense to put all your kids who are struggling in one group and all your kids doing well in another. The curriculum in the direct instruction curriculum is very carefully task analyzed. Uh, it followed a predetermined sequence of scripts and procedures. It used a highly structured format. It focused on the belief that basic skills underlie learning success. So the idea wasn't some stimulate your cognitive intelligence approach, but this was, let's give you those basic tool skills you will need to survive, that you will need to do well in academia. Let's teach you how to add. Let's teach you how to subtract from math. Let's teach you how to read. So the belief is, the successful underlying learning is underlined by these basic skills. And it was the teacher's job to ensure that students acquired their skills. So the teacher had a role and the student had a role. The student had a role to be there to learn, to get the skills, to practice the skills. The teacher had a role to teach the skills, right? It wasn't, as you'll see in some of the curriculum models of today, 
where the teacher sees himself as a facilitator or guide rather than a direct teacher. All right. The interaction was high with a focus on positive reinforcement, and there was a set error correction procedure. For example, one of the error correction procedures, if 100% of class got it correct, teacher would say, great, move on. If 80 to 99% of the class got it correct, the teacher would say, that's good, and give the correct answer. After that, the answer was six, because some of them missed it, right? It was less than 80% correct. Teachers would retrain. Teach the skill, reteach the skill. I put two videos uh, here on links uh, to look at direct instruction. This one, the first one is a link to the error correction procedure video you can purchase. The second one's a YouTube link for the Reading Mastery series from Distar, which is a direct instruction tool. All right, just so you can watch that on your own time and get a sense of how they used to do that. Direct instruction continued. Okay, so what was the other big thing about the curriculum? Well, it was conducted uh, with a continuous monitoring focus. They did bi-weekly criterion reference tests. Reading and language, there was a direct instruction program for reading. That's the reading mastery program. There's a level one and two of that. Uh, and then there's a direct instruction language program, which is a teach me language program which is a very good program. I still use that with some of the more high-functioning autistic kids to get language. I also use it with high-functioning children with, with uh, uh, intellectual disability. Uh, and actually, uh, the Teach Me language I actually use even with uh, some of the other kids uh, who have like conduct problems or oppositional defiant problems. So it's actually a really good program. During the initial stages of instruction, the instruction is focused on developing more language skills, vocabulary, and attention. Pre-reading skills then, like uh, letter sounds are introduced. Not naming the letter, the sounds of the letters are introduced. At the beginning, a limited number of consonants and vowel sounds are introduced. They don't just come out and do the whole album. Each sound pronounced by the teacher and the children in the group are asked to repeat it. So my turn, I... And then your turn, the kids go, ah, so that's where you have it, okay? Each sounds, uh, okay. Then two sounds are introduced for singular, and then the students learn to blend those sounds. So if you think of the word cat, it's k, ah, right? But when we say the word cat, we don't say k, ah, t, we say cat. So we do this process we call blending, and we'll talk about this a little later for our interventions. Blending is where you drag the letter into the next letter. Cat. So first the teachers have you do that. They say, say it slow. And then they say, say it fast. So it's cat. And then it's cat. So say it slow. Cat. Say it fast. Cat. Okay. And that's the way they start practicing. So the idea is to get them that sounding out pattern. And the idea is to get them to actually reading words as quickly as possible. That's why if there's six sounds, they're moving into words uh, to make it function, right? Written letters that correspond to the sounds are introduced in level one, but letter naming occurs much later. So you learn that ah is the sound for that letter A, but you don't know it's the letter A until later, which is different from how most of us are taught uh, to learn to read. Most of us are taught in kindergarten where we learn A, B, C, D. But what they wanted to do was not to 
get you too hung up on the names of the letters and get focused more on cracking the code. Uh, and so that's what was the basic uh, uh, idea behind that. Rhyming activities are carried out by introducing sound families like in, fin, sin, bin, at, cat, rat, sat. So the idea is to get the kid learning sound families, the rhyming words. After six sounds have been learned, reading begins with introducing simple phonetically re regular words. Depending on you, who you ask, the English language is somewhere between 60 and 80% phonetically regular. So it's best to start with the rules and then teach the exceptions later rather than working the exceptions in right from the beginning. Don't confuse the child. Just go right with the rule first. Okay. These words are then incorporated into simple sentences and very short stories. The program itself is called DISTAR Reading Mastery. That's the name of the curriculum. It uses a modified alphabet in which silent letters are shown. It's half size. So you have the letter for full, but that letter is like a silent E at the end. It's half size. Uh, and constant, consonant blends are actually printed as joint letters. So the CH sound, the C and the H will be like kind of touching each other or overlapping each other. So they're printed for joint sounds. The uppercase letters are not used except with the I for self. That's the only time you use in the early curriculum um, the uh, uppercase letters. These modifications are phased out over the course of the first level and the second level of the curriculum. In the second level of the curriculum, we start with what's called comprehension. First, they teach comprehension by interpreting pictures. Uh, then as it progresses, it moves to words, then sentences, then short stories. So it starts small and get bigger. Uh, intensive interaction occurs between teachers and children with the teacher asking basic WH questions to ensure that the child is learning to comprehend. Uh, and we find that with comprehension, there are two types of, I was telling uh, the group earlier today, there are two types of uh of problems with reading. There are people who phonetically cannot crack the code and sound it out, and then there are people who don't uh, comprehend what, they, uh, what they've cracked is the code. So those are the two general ones, but the largest category is actually the mixture. 70% of the kids with reading problems are what we call garden variety poor readers. And garden variety poor readers, 70% of readers, and that's a mixture of some uh, phonetic problems and some comprehension problems. So right there, they're going right at it. Let's eliminate as much of that comprehension problems as possible. Spelling is also quickly integrated into the program to get them to start spelling out words. Reinforcers are a big part of the program. Uh, they Rewards vary from praise to tangible, such as candy uh, and small, small take-home books in the program. Now, one of the criticisms direct instruction came with earlier is, oh, it's a drill and kill program. Your kids, poor kids in, uh, is three years old, and you're doing this to him and head start. The idea was that uh, the reading program itself was just 25 to 30 minutes a day for group instruction and 15 to 20 minutes a day of independent work with another 10 minutes a day of spelling. So it came to, as a half-day program, the kids got about an hour on reading. So it wasn't like people were trying to, you know, they still had their circle time, they still had their play time. The idea here was to give them a sense of um, just breaking into the reading. Now, 
the reading mastery curriculum was modified a little by Engelman, who published it later as a home course called Teaching Your Child to Read in 100 Easy Lessons. And it takes the child from the beginning of reading to the second grade reading level. And um, not just did I use this program as a teaching method for kids who are reading, I actually used it, well, actually my wife did, use the same program with my daughter when she was four years old. She used the teaching, so I'm also a consumer of this program. Uh, and my daughter really loved it. She picked up reading real quick. Uh, she was almost five and she could read at a second grade level. So the idea is this is actually not a bad curriculum to use. I wouldn't tell you to do something I wouldn't use with my own class, right? So, all right. So what, did, what was the other behavioral model? I said that there was a second. There was the Kansas behavior analysis model. Um, and they really saw in that Kansas behavior analysis model, sometimes it's learned, called, referred to as the behavioral reinforcement model, but they saw language as the core of academic improvement later. So the Kansas model primarily was a program that focused on language. It focused more on discrete, uh, on free operant training of language rather than discrete trial, which you get more of the LOVAS and the autistic kid programs. When we talk about a free operant program, really we're looking more naturalistic environment. We're looking more of the antecedents of the environment, drawing the sound out. Uh, we take a least to most prompting strategy there, uh, which starts out with maybe the incidental occurrence of an incident and then a time delay being your first prompt. So for example, the child reaches for the apple, you block the child's hand and you wait five seconds. If he says apple, you give him the apple. If not, you five, three to five seconds is considered your opportunity to respond uh, in that model. If the child does not uh, say apple, you might do a manned, what do you want? That's usually some kind of WH question. What do you want? You wait three to five seconds. You can reissue the man the second time if the child doesn't say anything. Or after the second reissuing or between, before the second reissuing, if you want, you can put your hand, child's hand on the apple and try to get the echoic, try to model the prompt for him. Apple, you want an apple? So you want an apple? And then the child, try to get the child to elaborate and repeat that. Okay. So that's just the idea. That got called for a long time milieu language training. There's a huge literature base on milieu language training. They also worked on things like say-do correspondence and do-say correspondence. So do-say correspondence is, first say-do correspondence is the child says something and then they do it and they reward them for the correspondence between what they said and they did. The second is they stop the child at some point they ask him what he just did and then they reward him for having done what he just did so that's do say correspondence behavioral approaches to language in general can be conceptualized as falling along a continuum from highly structured discrete trial and direct instruction to more naturalistic child-oriented interventions uh, such as just naturalistic conversation at the highly structured end of the continuum we see structured didactic teaching using strong behaviorally-based procedures, such as the direct instruction uh, article there that I give you from uh, Cole and Dale. In the middle of the continuum, we find those milieu language training procedures like incidental teaching, which emphasize functional use and interaction. 
I gave you a nice little article, uh, actually a chapter there uh, of Betty Hart's presentation of naturalistic language training procedures, which is better really comes down to what kind of child you're working with. Kane and McConnell did a quantitative analysis, which is a meta-analysis of those intervention types for children with autism, which was published in the Behavior Analyst today. And that link will take you right to the article. It's a free article. Let's talk a little bit about, so we had these two behavioral models. We had other models at the time, and we started to see that there was now a push because of this war on poverty to work with children of so, lower socioeconomic status. So from the beginning, research was conducted and showed that intervention, regardless of the type, could be very strong with this population. Seifert, who had a moderately structured curriculum that was cognitively based, well, Seifert actually did the research on this. It's Weikert's program. Compared to that to the I curriculum of Blinder and Engelman, uh, and the results showed that both these preschool programs differ li little in the one kind of process, namely the amount of verbal interaction the child is getting. But they also showed a significant gain, 30-point IQ gain. And I give you the article there for comparing these two programs. And so Seifert said it really didn't matter whether it was a behavioral or cognitive program. Really, the issue there, it seemed to be, is how much interaction you have with the child. Okay, so now the government then proposes a question. The question in 1968, under the sponsorship of the federal government, was which of these programs works best? Which of these programs do we really think will help the most children. Let's get some research on that and find out. So the federal government asked Westinghouse to turn around and to uh, go and evaluate the Head Start programs with these different models. And let's see, you know, let's see how this worked out. Now, follow through really did not just work for on entire curriculums. If you go to the Bergen and Cratchwell text, for example, on behavioral consultation, which is still considered the cornerstone text of behavioral consultation. You'll see in the beginning the many examples of consultation problems in this text have been taken from files of over 4,000 cases accumulated through, uh, through the work done and follow through and through subsequent research and demonstration problems. So the idea here is that the first, the earliest intervention was this kind of uh, project, project follow through. Um, and so we charged it with Westinghouse to kind of figure out what's the best way to teach these kids. Now, there immediately became some brushback. The idea was there were a lot of people that felt things like uh, intellectual disability, back then termed mental retardation, were genetic problems, and there was nothing you can do about it. So you heard things like it's biological and won't respond. Nothing works. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. I heard these same exact arguments later on in the 80s with the prison system. Nothing works. You know, uh, it's a waste of taxpayer money. Just incarcerate them. No need for any kind of interventions. I, w I wanted to just point out that early on, since behaviorists were hearing this, there were behaviorists that actually worked with problems we all knew were biological problems. Uh, for example, Shapiro and Seward, they worked with kids with asthma, and they showed the kids could be taught to uh, control their physiological functions. I give a reference there for uh, that particular program, but they pointed out just because of 
problem has a non-behavioral etiology does not mean that a behavioral treatment will be ineffective. So that's something that you can, Timothy was pointing out, he heard the same with blood pressure. Yes, you can teach people to control physiological events like blood pressure. This is important because this argument rises again in learning disabilities, ADHD, autism. You hear it across the board. So now I'm going to talk about the two core behavioral models and a quasi-behavioral mixed model. All right. So the two behavioral models, as they went into project follow-through, this is the way they're described. Direct instruction model. And I'll give you a little bit of the definition there. And it was sponsored by the University of Oregon. And then the behavior analysis model, which is called the behavioral reinforcement model. And it used a lot of social praise. And that was done out of the University of Kansas. And then we had the language development model, which was a mixed behavioral and developmental model that focused on giving kids language skills instead of direct focus on reading. And so that actually came out of Southwest Educational Laboratories. All these models did quite well. Direct instruction, though, outperformed the developmental behavioral model and outperformed the behavior analysis model. Uh, and it outperformed pretty much every other model in the program. So if you want to see the report from Westinghouse, I gave you the reference there so that you can look it up. So how well did it outperform them? I just want to take a minute here and show you. The zero point is if we just put you in a regular education school district program instead of one of these specialized programs. The results here on the side on the top are for the behavior analysis program, uh, for the direct instruction program. And you can see it was superior in academic, cognitive, effective, all the way across the board for the three. Um, the behavior uh, behavioral reinforcement model, it was good for academic and it was good for effective, but it wasn't good for what they call cognitive, which is actually the training of problem-solving skills which, by the way, the program didn't directly teach, and it might have been a fault of the program's design that it did not engage in that. It spent much more time focusing on language development. I'm going to move to the next slide. These are some of the other curriculums. This is the same slide, kind of, but what it's done is it flips it over, and it just gives you a little more idea here. Student performance in a traditional school is the zero point. And I, what I always find funny is, the, be, the direct instruction and the behavior analysis model, right? This is a behavior analysis model. This is the direct instructions. Look at the red bar. That's on self-esteem. We had an open-ended education model in this uh, project follow-through. It was completely focused on self-esteem. And those kids did not do anywhere near as good. They actually did worse than the kids in the school program, regular school programs, when it came to self-esteem. So the idea is, is self-esteem may not be something that is directly taught, but self-esteem from saying to yourself, I'm good enough and gosh darn it, people like me. That self-esteem may be just a function of how well you're actually doing in the moment. If you know you're doing well and you're doing good, then you have high self-esteem. Just putting that out there. So there were some other programs, children in the, other, in the behavioral program and non-behavioral programs overall did well but did not achieve the level of the non-disadvantaged children. That never happened. They never were peer equal to the non-disadvantaged kids. Uh, and for the evaluation, Ziegler was very big in evaluating these programs. Uh, I gave you a link for that. The overall IQ gains, though, for the program in the Westinghouse study, uh, as much as 17 points 
for the DI model, which was actually the highest number of points, all vanished five years in. And there's nothing to say that a per intervention we do when you're four should be when you're nine still raising your IQ. I mean, some of this is the school system itself, and that's why you'll see that there are actually deferential instruction programs like corrective reading done in the school system for helping kids who are failing at reading. But here's another uh, thing on how the uh, – this is the report on how the 67 report by Cartwright is on the effectiveness of these programs on follow That was took us to the end of the 70s. By the 80s, then, the literature started to ask questions like, were there any sleeper effects to these programs? And you were starting to see there were sleeper effects identified by people's or people, excuse me, in the groups. So, for example, Mayer did a long-term academic effects of direct instruction in Project Palafoot. We found that 34% of the kids in the DI group went to college, while only 17% in the non-DI groups went to college. Uh, they also had fewer dropouts and higher college acceptance. This also, there was uh, work being done on direct instruction, not just as an early intervention model, but direct instruction is um, from kindergarten all the way up to uh, the end, the beginning of high school. And what we found was that there are 50 years of research, and if you click on that link, that's a meta-analysis that shows you, the research shows it's phenomenally effective as a person. So the behavior analysis model also continued on. It did not disappear. It contributed to core research in the field of applied behavior analysis. Its focus became later on the amount of instruction a child received in a regular classroom that is sort of in a poverty area versus the regular classroom in an affluent area. So they looked on the amount of instruction received, and they did a lot of work on this idea of opportunity to respond. The idea of opportunity to respond, the more response opportunities you get, the more academically engaged you are, the higher your rate of learning. And they were able to kind of prove this over many years. There is actually a book for their preschool program, and I can't remember the name of it. It was Hart and Risley, Meaningful Differences, where they looked at this idea of the amount of opportunity a child is given to talk in the home and how much that affects their later IQ and language output. So I just gave you a reference for uh, the big names if you're ever looking for University of Kansas, so Charles Greenwood and his wife, Judith Carter. Also, you see here is Betty Hart, uh, Tom Risley, some other names on there. So what we see here is the behavior analysts developed a model which they term a developmental retardation model because the times were uh, the idea was retardation was the word used, not that they were trying to offend people. But I gave you a good link on that, uh, on laying out this model, and it still receives research about how much opportunity to respond you have and your later correlate with IQ at age nine. It's important to know that they really did maintain their focus on this idea of fluency in language. Uh, and they went on to develop this thing called the early, early communication indicator. Uh, and this is a copy of an article on the early communication indicator. It was published in the Behavior Analyst today back in 2003. The idea of the early communication indicator looks at fluency as words per minute spoken by the child. And it's, the measure has good reliability. 
and it can actually be used to making good decisions for placement for students. And those are the two links that I've given there. Overall, though, let's go back to Headstone. Westinghouse, what is Westinghouse famous for? They're famous for creating toasters, to be honest with you. Creating machines and appliances to put in your home. Not really what we go to first to say, how are kids evaluated? And is that valuation workable or important? Because they were not so versed in uh, outcome data and outcome analysis, they jumped on this idea of IQ scores. Because IQ is our single best predictor of academic success. Also, another predictor of academic success is how well you learn the precursor skill. But we'll get to that later. But one of the best predictors of academic success is this idea of your IQ score. But the IQ score, not just in the behavior analysis program, in other programs, had to catch a lot of the sleeper effects, right? Now, remember the behavior analysis, uh, the, excuse me, direct instruction program used this other thing called criterion reference tests, what we call achievement tests. But they were downplayed how they did on the achievement tests. Uh, and there were reasons for that. It was less directly interpretable between tests. There was some arguments over whether or not it was the best kind of measures to use. But what we see is this whole idea of achievement testing came out of an earlier part of the behavioral movement called performance objectives, creating objectives, goal setting, uh, and criterion reference tests came out of the norm, uh, the goal setting movement of the early 60s, which basically held if you had goals, you could easily measure if those goals were being achieved and help everybody work towards those goals. That's the end I'm gonna give you on setting up structured programs. I just wanted to tell you the Teaching Child to Read program, I actually have uh, students and I have other people to work for me, and we do that online, the Teaching Your Child to Read program, as we also do some of these curriculum-based measures online uh, with students through telehealth. Uh, you just gotta make sure they have a copy of the book and that the person working one-on-one, they're 15 minute a day lessons, I don't know, you can charge a price per person and have someone tutoring them through the direct instruction. If the families are worried because their daycare is shut down because of COVID, the kid's not learning to read, or their families learn, uh, is worried for any other reasons, uh, these are not a bad book to use. Corrective reading is also not bad to use if the kid was struggling in the first five or six years of school to use what they can on that. Okay, so let's go to the alternatives to criterion reference text. The first alternative to emerge was this idea of curriculum-based assessment. This approach looked at curriculum uh, the child was on with the intention of addressing the child's performance on the curriculum. It had the child read a passage while the teacher scored the errors. The teacher looked for things like insertions, putting in a word that wasn't there, self-corrections, the child correcting their own mistake, etc. As deletions, not saying the word that was there, saying the word wrong. They worked on average, uh, at, on averages, these curriculum-based assessment procedures, and teachers would set cutoff decisions such as 90% correct or below was a frustration level. And that makes sense. If you go to the newspaper and you black out randomly one out of every 10 words, you cannot figure out what the hell the article is talking it makes sense. It would be frustrating. 90 to 98% was considered an instructional level. That's where our teaching start is. 98 and above is considered a mastery level. 
But this approach was accuracy-focused, and it left out the concept of speed. A child could read slow and struggle his way through a paragraph uh, and not be fluent at all. And so 77 and then later 88, you got Deno and Shin. They decided to build on this evaluation system using rate instead of percent correct. And I gave you some references there to look that up if you want to do some more reading on that. And this is another article I hope that I'll get to at the end of this presentation, but I might not. This is on using those standards for children with disabilities and how well that worked. That's a good article to read. So what is curriculum-based measurement? Curriculum-based measurement, we have data. It's a data collection tool derived from the curriculum that the student is expected to learn on. So the first set of information you get is, can the child read the damn textbook in front of them? That is a very important thing to know. But there's some things you can't tell. You can't tell you if that child was blind. You know what I'm saying? So it's not the end-all and be-all of everything you need to know, but it is a great starting point, right? CBM is a fluency-based, and CBA is accuracy-based. Fluency is accuracy plus speed. CBM is a quicker method to determine a child's grade level. When we talk about curriculum-based evaluation, we're talking about evaluating based on either your CBM or CBA, uh, CBA score and using that in a problem-solving model to track intervention. Up through grade three, curriculum-based measurement is considered one of the best predictors of future reading performance. And I give you the reference on that. What we see is those curriculum-based measures actually outperform the CBA measures and the idea there is they're a superior measure because they're focused on reading. Because CBM is directly tied to the curriculum, it possesses a higher level of sensitivity and allows for the data to be graphed. It's hard to graph those percentages, 90%, 80%, because you don't know really what they mean. Did you read a 100-word paragraph or a 20-word paragraph? So there you get some ideas there. But it allows for uh, it to be developed into the IEP. IEP. Curriculum-based measurement allows teachers to identify specific curriculum deficiencies and instructional strategies for them. Even if you're just a behavior analyst working purely on disruptive behavior, sometimes using CBM helps you get those instructional antecedents that are triggering behavior problems. And you could say the child's below the curriculum level. He might be frustrated or the child is above the curriculum level. And he's past mastery, so he might be bored. Let, conducting a curriculum-based measurement, find a book that is in the curriculum that your students are interested in. These, this will ensure that motivation is not a factor in the results. You want to find a book that has a passage that is common for the child of their area of interest. If they're interested in popcorn machines, look for a story about popcorn machines. For Basil readers, select a 300-word passage, one from the beginning of the Basil book, one from the middle, and one from the end of the book. For first and second grades, uh, grade students, use a briefer passage, 100 to 200 words. For literature-based programs, it's important you put the books in the school's readability formula and then just proceed as a Basil. You want to select a passage that contains few proper names. Um, are related to topics familiar to the student and are primarily flowing narratives rather than dialogue or poetry, because all those things will affect their reading. For each passage, construct a teacher score sheet 
And that's exactly the same as the student reading sheet, except that it has the little numbers on the side. I'll show you in a minute. Give the probe, probe starting at a level in which you feel the student is going to be reasonably successful. The prompt is, when I say, please begin, read the story out loud to me. Start here and point to where you want them to start. I actually, if I'm doing it on uh, over the Internet, I kind of just point to the child, start here on the thing so that they can see it. And read as quickly and as carefully as you can. Try to say each word, ready, please begin. Right, you want to have that standardized instruction because you're going to make that sta standardized opening because tests should be standardized. All right, the examiner starts the stopwatch when the student says the first word. The student does not say the initial word within three seconds. Give the student the first word and then start the start watch, stopwatch. As the student reads along the text, the examiner records any errors by marking a slash through the incorrect re red word. If the student hesitates for three seconds on any word, the examiner says the word and marks it as an error. It, it, at the end of one minute, the examiner says, please stop, and marks the student's concluding place in the text with a bracket. Let the child read for one minute and then count the number of words they read correctly. During the student's reading, the examiner makes notes of any errors in the passage. Then the examiner scores the passage by calculating the number of words read correctly. This is adults reading passage. I'm just using this as an example. As you see, if he reads the first line completely great, he's got 21 words read. If he misses old, he would just put a line through old, and he would have 20 words that he read there. As you can see, 21, 44. So this is what your scoring sheet looks like. It's just you counting beforehand the number of words that were to this point, so you don't have to do it. What are our cutoffs? Well, this is an and process. Less than 40% correct or more than four errors, we call the child in fr frustration level in grades one and two. Instructional is 40 to 60% uh, 40 to 60 words per minute correct with four or less errors. Mastery is greater than 60 words with four or more errors. When we move to three to six, what we see here is frustration less than 70 words per minute or greater than six, uh, six errors. Instructional, 70 words per minute uh, to 100, six or less errors. Mastery, greater than 100 words a minute with six or less errors. If the median score falls at the instructional level or greater, continue to go up. Stop at the highest level, which assigns the student scores instruction. If the student's median score is below the instructional level, sample the student's reading level at lower levels. I'm just going to kind of jump ahead a little bit. This is on error analysis. You know, did the student use context clues when these errors are made? This tells you things about where to begin teaching. Do the words sound similar? Do the words have similar phonemes? Are the words the same syntax? To assess grammar, we use an old technique that was used in what they used to talk about as programmed instruction, and it's this concept of story grammar. I gave you two articles on story grammar. Don't let story grammar confuse you. It's just asking what was the setting, what was the plot, how was it resolved. That's basically all you're asking the child. Don't let it confuse you. It doesn't have to be complicated questions. I know they're now calling story grammar a metacognitive skill, and I know that gives people some heartbreak. There's a good link on story grammar right there if you want to watch sort of a slideshow on that. Another way of assessing reading prose is what they call maze, maze passages. That's where it's just missing a word and they have to put it in. The good thing about administering a maze 
is you don't have to listen to them read. There are no state-by-state norms on the maze, but there are national norms that you can find on the Internet. I like to go to Intervention Central and AimsWeb. These are two sites that have given me a lot of information and material over time. This is just what a, a, a maze technique looks like. Babe could never pass up a ball game. You see, this could be done without actually having a student read out loud. So some people like that. All right, so let's move to goal setting. Uh, and like I said, Intervention Central gives you a lot of good ways to set goals. I got this actually from Intervention Central at one time. But the problem is, is I went back there like a week ago when I heard I was going to do this again. And I could not find the reference I initially had for this. So it's gone. But this is from Intervention Central. It's how to compute a student reading goal. It's at what grade or book level did it, was the student be a monitor, first, second, third grade, fourth grade? What is the student's baseline reading at that rate? The number of words per minute. So that's word, the correct words per minute. That's at CRW. When is the start date to begin monitoring the student's reading? You will put that down. When is the end date for student reading? How many instructional weeks are between the start date and the end date? You just put it down round to the nearest instructional week. What do you predict the student's average increase in correctly and read words per minute will be for each instructional week of the monitoring period? I want to give you some ideas of uh, in the later slides on uh, just what is an ambitious goal and what is like sort of a good goal. What will the student's predicted uh, correct words per minute gain and fluency be at the end of the monitoring period? So you're just multiplying lines five and six. And then what's the student's predicted reading rate at the beginning of the monitoring period? Just add two and seven together. I tend to use the old precision teaching language when I talk about, about these things. Uh, and I'm getting no pressure. Just wanted to let you know you're creeping into Mike's time. Okay, that's pressure. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to just shoot through these as quick as possible. I kind of like the old precision teaching uh, things. So this is an example of a goal. When Johnny sees a paragraph of words, he will say each word in the paragraph at a rate of 35 words per minute for five consecutive paragraphs. That would be a considered a nice instructional or behavioral objectives. I talk about these objectives as CSAI. That's learning channel action. This comes out of the old precision teaching letter, literature. Hear, say, and see, write. Let's talk about progress monitoring, frequent and repeated data collection, no less than two to three times a week for analyzing the student's performance. That is collected during the intervention and provides inter or intervention effectiveness. Essential components that must be in place for successful progress monitoring, a well-defined target behavior, a measurement strategy, identifying the student's current performance, that's your baseline. What interventions are you gonna use they might be repeated readings. They might be a direct instruction intervention. They might be something else that you come up with. You set the goal. I just showed you how to set the goal. You graph your data. We're going to talk a little bit about a, an aim line. And then using that graph to make your uh, plan to decide if it's working. What are some of those target behaviors we talked about when we talk about reading? Go right back to our direct instruction. Phonemic awareness sound letter correspondence, blending, alphabetical understanding, fluency, sight words might be something targeted if you want to get, uh, you know, it doesn't all have to be direct instruction, and comprehension, right? So these are some of the behaviors we're targeting. We used to do in the old days comprehension drills where we would just go through and ask kids 
just random comprehensions that build up their auditory comprehension during the day. Current level of performance in the baseline gathered prior to the intervention, it's repeatable, provides a comparison of progress for the data and helps you set the goal. We always go our line for our graph through the median score. You only have to get the median score on your assessment. You don't have to do three reads on your intervention, on your ongoing monitoring. But if you're doing the initial, do get the median score. The child might be a little bit anxious on one or two of the paragraphs, and you get a lot of discrepancy. Three counts for, I think it was 85% of the variance when they did the uh, old uh, studies on that. Okay, so I told you before I was going to give you growth rates, realistic growth rates, first grade, uh, two words a week. Ambitious will be three words a week. Notice by the time you get up to fifth grade, it's only that the child's reading at 0.5 words a week more. And ambitious is 0.8 words a week. Why is that? You have to build much more vocabulary and sounding out to get changes because the child, you know, your first hundred words are your first hundred words are pretty set. But when you get to fifth grade, there are thousands of words and they may or may not be on the phone. Graphing your data, visual depiction of the student's performance on data relative to the goal and the angle. This includes baseline data and your aim and progress. You set your goal, you set your you run it through your uh, minimum progress line, or your, what they call an aim line, and then you ask yourself, is my data points falling below my goal or above my goal, right? And here's a good article for graphing and shows you how to do it. So graphing is visual, uh, visual representation. I gave a little plug here for, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but the idea of charting is important, and you know, uh, semi-logarithmic charts can actually be really helpful. You're looking for an A, what they call a JAWS pattern on the acceleration chart where the number of errors is going down and the number of words read correctly is going up. They often refer to that if you look at this, it's just like the JAWS of the mouth. They call that the JAWS pattern. That's actually a very good pattern for this. That's, so if you're stuck for interventions, you can use either direct instruction or the behavior analysis model for language. Direct instruction interventions for Reading with modification to your learners can actually be used. Um, this is some data decision points. I'm getting right to the end. I know uh, <laughs> Tim is upset. He's like, oh, no, he's going over. But you're right. if, you, if you look at your data points, and four out of six data points are above your aim line, right? They're going above your aim line. Then adjust your goal and raise your performance. If, on the other hand, you have three out of the four consecutive data points below your aim line, you might want to look at a different intervention. You might want to look at adding an intervention, like repeated readings or maybe a copy cover and compare technique, something like that. You might start adding in. And so, or you can lower your goal if everybody's with that and okay with that. So these are what you'll read in some of the articles I gave you are this idea of setting benchmarks for fluency that comes out of Denner's work. You can also do a thing called local norming. You could get the norms for a classroom. You can get the norms for the second grade in a school, and you can do those. And these are very similar to the ones I gave you on slide 22. So that's it. Uh, and I'm going to turn it back over to Tim, who's probably saying Joe talks way too much. <laughs> Joe, I'm going to... Uh, uh... Do you, can you know how to stop sharing? You see a stop sharing. I yeah. press the button. Let, tell me if this works. There, there it comes. There it comes. 
Okay, I am not even going to take any chances with this. I'm not going to share myself. I'm just going to read this. And I hope it's not going to mute me again. Okay, <laughs> Michael Weinberg is a board-certified behavior analyst, uh, doctoral, and a licensed psychologist for more than 30 years. He has 35-plus years of experience in the application of behavior analytic services to various populations and age groups. He is adjunct faculty at Brandman and St. Joseph Universities, writes and instructs graduate courses to train behavior analysts, as well as supervising those seeking BCBA and BCABA certification in behavior analysis. Dr. Weinberg studied at the E.K. Shriver Center in Waltham, Massachusetts, under the direction of Dr. Murray Sidman, where he earned his B.A. in psychology from Northeastern University. He received his Ph.D. in 1985 in the Experimental Analysis Program at Temple University in Philadelphia, P.A. He was Director of Psychological Services at Southbury Training School in Connecticut, Clinical Director for Adult and Director of ABA Services in Devereux in Pennsylvania and Florida. Dr. Weinberg is currently Director of Professional Development for Amigo Incorporated, uh, part of this webinar, and founder of Orlando Behavior Health. He has particular interest of treating individuals with self-injurious and other serious problem behaviors and co-authored a chapter in the Handbook of Juvenile Justice on Use PBS with this population. Hmm. Dr. Weinberg is on the board of directors and past president of the CTABA state chapter uh, it's probably Connecticut ABA and trustee of the Cambridge uh, Center for Behavioral Studies. And he's going to be speaking to us about using organizational behavior management approaches in social services. And it looks like he's ready to go. So, Dr. Weinberg, please take it away. Okay. Well, thank Tim and thank you, Joe. Very good. And we'll talk about, a, we're going to talk a very small slice of OBM, uh, because this is a very uh, large area with many different uses and applications nowadays um, and can be used in manufacturing, industry, offices, uh, for uh, staff performance in any work setting, restaurants, you know, grocery stores, or maybe your ABA practice or any kind of clinical or other service. So it really has a very broad range of use. Um, we used to do these workshops, uh, Joe and I, and um, a lot of times we had people who were starting organizations or a lot of human resource folks came as well to get some ideas on how to do this. And uh, I personally have done consultation and support to agencies and organizations to help them get started, help them move forward, use OBM methods and tactics, or to help them solve some problems or issues that they were having in their in their company, uh, so well, um, this is the the goals defining OBM state uh, three OBM met methods uh, for staff performance. Describe a model of implementation of OBM to improve outcomes, and explain describe factors uh, to um, tools uh, employers and HR professionals may use to improve hiring processes. All right. So what's OBM? Uh, and I know we're going to be a little bit limited on time. We'll try to do what we can here. Um, OBM is the use of behavioral assessment and technology to enhance company performance. Uh, it's incentive programs are strongly used uh, in this technology. One of the first programs to 
uh, do, do this with widespread success uh, was uh, Link Electric. And it was started actually in the late 50s and um, receiving its uh, recognition OBM community by the 1970s and continues on. They created incentive programs to increase uh, employee performance. I really don't have time to, to get into all the details of it here where we have a restricted time. So we'll just move on. But that was one of the pioneering programs out there in, in a, a company. So behavioral interventions like incentive systems uh, can be uh, integrated into organizations to, to achieve operational goals. And the tie-in can occur at multiple levels, including uh, human resource level. The OBM literature offers a number of proven strategies of procedures for improving quality of services. Um, in the 1980s, researchers began to expand the scope of OBM interventions in social services uh, to include large-scale and long-term uh, applications. Let's see here. Advancic, uh, Reed, Iwanafa, and Page in 81 evaluated a behavioral supervision program designed to incorporate language training into the routine care of people with developmental disabilities. The supervisor was trained to use props and feedback to train seven direct care staff to use four language training techniques. This resulted in the increased use of techniques. Supervisory feedback was gradually removed or thinned out without a decrease in staff performance during a maintenance condition. Questions raised were uh, how to establish the use of supervisory procedures with direct line supervisors and how to refine the language interventions to produce the greatest outcomes. And I can tell you currently with regard to if you're involved with, uh, you know, any uh, supervision or training of behavior analysts and with, um, you know, those pursuing their certification right now, moving to the task list five, which is uh, starting up uh, pretty soon or in another year out. Uh, there is a big emphasis by the BACB on the utilization of OBM approaches and methods in supervision and management of our supervisees in our settings that we work in with individuals with various kinds of you know, behavior problems and needs, no matter what the population or diagnosis is. So this is a very effective approach, and I use it myself, use OBM myself, and uh, there, there are many more studies out there nowadays, and um, I can actually provide those if you're interested, some, some of the most recent uh, references on this. Um, Ellie Kazemi in California is one person that comes comes to mind, and uh, some folks at the BACB also have been publishing some uh, studies and papers on this area. So the other other large scale intervention, uh, there are a number of these here that you can see that have all demonstrated large scale long term success with OBM interventions, and of course behavioral approaches, as we know, are very effective in an organization using these behavioral approaches link the company's strategy to specific types of behavior necessarily necessary for implementing that strategy it may be tied in with like mission and vision statements that a company has. Here's what we want to do in an overarching strategy by company owners and managers of what they're trying to accomplish and how to help workers uh, and train them to meet those goals and objectives of the organization. It provides specific employees with the, the guidance and feedback, right, of the expectations. Most procedures rely on in-depth job analysis, so the behaviors that are identified and measured are valid. 
And this is very important. And we're going to move on shortly into some of those methods and techniques that, that are most widely used in, in OBM. Because the, the, those responsible for using the measures are involved in developing them, acceptability is often uh, high. The techniques are reasonably, reasonably reliable for assessing and intervening. A major weakness is behaviors have to be constantly monitored to ensure they're in line with the company's strategy. So that will take some time and uh, effort on the part of supervisors, managers, and, and others uh, in the organization. Companies choose to reinforce process over outcome. And so it assumes that uh, the one way is the best way, but this could be not the best thing to do in an organization. You might want to look more at what what's the, the goal, what's the outcome, uh, and depending on the situation. So uh, the approach attempts to define behaviors an employee must exhibit to be effective on the job. Uh, so various techniques are used uh, to define behavior, and we'll take a look at these. Uh, the five most common are critical incidents, behavior observation scales, or uh, BOSTs, behaviorally anchored rating scales known as BARs, functional analysis, and assessment centers. I will try to do a review of, of those, and that's really going to be most of the rest of our focus here on these methodologies. Uh, critical, critical incidents. Uh, it's an approach that requires managers to define the behaviors that the employee must admit to be effective on the job. Managers um, keep specific examples of effective and ineffective performance on the part of the employee. Incidents are used to give the employee specific feedback about what they do well and what they do poorly. Reports could be tied, again, to the company's overall strategy. Many managers resist keeping daily or weekly logs of employee behavior, so this could make uh, matters a little bit difficult if that, that is the case. So then maybe their, their managers above them have to, um, you know, get them on board with, uh, with keeping track of this and doing what they need to be doing as a manager. The bars, bars built on critical incident approach. They're designed to specifically define problem performance dimensions by developing behavioral anchors associated with different levels of uh, performance. So to develop that, one first gathers a large number of critical incidents that represent effective and uh, effective performance on the job. Uh, the incidents are classified into performance dimensions that experts agree clearly represent a particular level of performance. Um, uh, are used as your uh, examples or anchors to guide the rater. The manager's task is to consider an employee's performance along each dimension, and the manager uh, determines where in the dimension the employee, employee's performance fits using uh, the, the behavioral anchors as guides. Uh, so from there, it's pretty straightforward, but you can see how it can be uh, painstaking and take time to develop these anchors for specific jobs. But a lot of times, if you go back to job descriptions, those anchors should be in there. If they're not, then maybe there's a problem with the job description and that might have to be revised or updated. This rating uh, can be the employee's score for that dimension. Bars have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, an advantage is that they can increase integrated reliability by more specifically defining the performance dimension. The disadvantage is that they can bias recall. Behavior that's close to the anchor might be behavior uh, recalled. For example, research by Wersman and Latham in 86 showed that managers do not make much distinction between bars and trade scales. 
behavior, behavioral observation scales or BOSS are variations of the bars and both uh, are developed from critical incidents, but differ in two ways. So for um, this one, um, you don't discard a large number of the behaviors. Um, in fact, the BOSS may use a lot more of the, of the anchor behaviors that you need to look at, uh, which might make it a little more cumbersome. The second difference is that rather than assessing which behavior best reflects an individual's performance, the boss requires managers to rate the frequency with which the employee exhibited each of the behaviors, and then their uh, ratings are averaged for overall performance. So it's a lot more effort and time to, to use this methodology, but can be very useful and you can also get much more accurate or better data on employee performance. So major drawbacks of the boss is that it requires more information, as, as we're saying, um, and that mo most managers really are not, not willing to do or reluctant to do. A boss can have 80 or more discrete behaviors, and the manager must remember how frequently the behavior is exhibited. Hopefully they record it. The scaling can be over six to 12 months of time, so it takes a long time as well. Very taxing and um, more taxing if the manager has uh, 10 to 12 employees under him or her, as you can imagine. A direct comparison of the two found that both managers and employees prefer the boss for differentiating good employees from poor uh, employees. And uh, the boss was also viewed as more objective, providing more opportunities for feedback, suggestive of training needs and being easy to use among managers and subordinates. A bar chart, um, what was a Pareto chart? We'll talk about Pareto charting as one of the methods that's used a lot of times in OBM and organizations to look at um, different relative factors involved in performance. Uh, it could be from a different division of the company, different sales that are occurring, how, how are different products doing for maybe automobile manufacturers? This is another example, one I like to use a lot. And, you know, you could use it for ball players on a ball team who's doing, who's ha performing best on a ball team and rank order it. And so we're going to um, go into this a little bit more. Um, it separates the vital few from the trivial many, the Pareto principle. Uh, so it big, breaks a big problem into smaller pieces. Very good for managers and owners of companies um, to look at to help make some uh, important decisions uh, in the organization. Identifies most significant factors being evaluated, uh, shows where to focus efforts for improvement or change, allows for better utilization of limited resources in an organization. Uh, so here you, here's how you construct it. You record your data, order the data um, in, in rank order. Um, you can do from highest to lowest or lowest to highest. Doesn't really matter. It depends what your purpose is. Label your axes and then you just you plot it on, on a bar graph. You add, add up add up the counts, add a cumulative line as well, so you can make sure you're getting up to the 100% mark. Add your you know um, legend title and so on on your your graph, and then you can analyze it. Uh, here is a um, sample Pareto chart. It says here for unsatisfactory customer service. So you can see here the percentages of each of these categories, and they're rank ordered from highest to lowest from you know, lack of training and adequate flawed communication, high turnover, lack of manager support. And then you see the cumulative here, so that here it adds up to 100% of those um, ratings 
on this. So it's a just a tool that can be used to help understand what's going on in an organization from a quality and performance and outcomes perspective in uh, many different ways. So uh, it's, a, it's a useful tool um, for you. Okay, so functional assessment, let's move on. Formal system of observing right antecedents to critical behavior and consequences can be done for individuals' performance or for you know groups. The techniques uh, vary and mostly rely on direct observation. So a lot of time, it, you're really using a descriptive assessment as we would know it standardly in behavior analysis where you do an indirect and direct assessment component. Uh, but you do this with employee performance and you see what their employees are doing on the job. Define the key set of behaviors necessary for job performance. Use any of the previous measurement systems to check, uh, to determine if the behaviors are exhibited. Uh, observe conditions under which the behaviors occur. So you could determine if it's a skills deficit or motivational issue, uh, i.e. obstacles to performance, punishment for performance, failure to receive feedback, and so on. And then you can test out your hypotheses to see which may be accurate or correct. Okay, assessment centers are usually used for selection and promotion. They also have been used as a way of measuring managerial performance. As an assessment center, usually used for selection promotion decisions, they have also been used to uh, measure, well, as I mentioned, managerial performance, as I said. And um, so you uh, see, look at a number of um, simulated tasks or role plays in the situation. You observe their performance and evaluate their skills to see if they can be potential managers. Um, the advantage is that they provide some other objective measure of performance. So it might be a way you actually want to um, see if they, they can actually perform the skill or task, like in a manufacturing industry, supervisory role, or whatever. We might do it with um, people pro providing behavioral clinical services and have a role play to determine if that individual is capable of performing competent uh, intervention approaches. Uh, and so you could do it with, you know, with a child with autism and providing intervention. You could do it with um, uh, uh, working in uh, therapeutic or other counseling approaches or centers if you're doing that kind of work. I often do this uh, as, as part of uh, behavioral interviewing. We won't talk about that much, but I actually set up those kind of role plays in uh, behavioral interviewing when interviewing new people coming in, but that's a whole other uh, talk unto itself, but a very effective method of, of identifying new hires that, that are going to be most likely able to, to perform the, the job that you're, you're hiring for. So in addition to this, assessments uh, centers provide specific performance feedback, individualized development plans to be designed. The managers go through the assessment process to become certified middle managers one way to go about it and it includes an assessment center at the beginning of the program an action plan is developed over the next couple of years the employee's development is guided by the plan and factors like training programs on the job development experiences are designed to help employees uh, develop their skills and after a couple of years the potential managers can return to the to the center right to take a look at what's what's happening and uh so we have Four basic steps. Take time to define key behaviors, develop a way to measure them, conduct a functional analysis of the behavior to determine why it's occurring, intervene by using information from functional analysis, 
and techniques might be goal setting with feedback and reinforcement, assess results and repeat steps as necessary. And again, of course, OBM works on, um, you know, principles of behavior analysis and the technology, as I mentioned, is, is really extensive. So uh, some of the techniques uh, that deserve mention are those that lead to more effective job design, more effective hiring, increased productivity and worker satisfaction, increased worker safety, and help to evaluate uh, performance. Of course, this can help with reducing uh, turnover in the organization. Uh, how we're doing on time here. One way OBM uh, techniques can lead to more effective job design is through task analysis. The job is amb ambitious through a goal analysis. Uh, it looks at the organization or the job's uh, stated goals, determine the tasks that are needed to achieve the goals, and conduct the task analysis. And so very, very much like what we would do with maybe a client we're serving, we do this in the workplace with employees. So of course we know what a task analysis is. Um, we analyze the background experience, tool skills, and behaviors that are required to perform that job. Ensure that the job design is reinforcing the person's going to perform it. Is job consistent with their learning history? Do others in the organization provide information about the person's effectiveness? Does the job allow for positive social interaction? Does the job provide an amount of autonomy that the performer would uh, prefer? Task and goal clarity. Are the job duty, goals, and requirements clearly specified? Does the job allow the person to see the product of their work? Does the job require particular skills? Is the job important in the company? And does it allow for learning? And let's see, we're gonna go on from here. Well, this is behavioral interviewing, as I said briefly, but we're probably not gonna have time to really get into it here. It doesn't look like, but um, I give you a little bit of it, but it asks about specific situations a person may encounter on the job and ask them to stay how they have handled such situations in the past. And you can combine this with, with a role play as well. And, and it works very well. I've done this a number of times and, and new hires and it's a very effective approach. So based on a functional analysis of the discrepancy, interventions may give clear instructions, apply training, remove obstacles, apply rewards, incentives, recognition, remove punishes and other features. Incentives can be based on individual performance or on group performance and apply to individual or groups. And so behavioral safety is another whole area that um, is areas unto itself, but can work, work as well from an OBM perspective. This is something that people are doing. Aubrey Daniels does it. The Cambridge Center has a whole behavioral safety program that we've had in place for a number of years that's very successful with large uh, companies worldwide. And the greater specification on the objectives that a worker is to achieve and the behavior that is needed to achieve it, more objective evaluations can be conducted. So OBM can help with how we attract workers during work shortages, how to organize what workers do, how, how do we consult to social service agencies, how do we increase worker efficiency while increasing job satisfaction. And so I don't think I'm gonna have time to get into all these. Um, in fact, I'm gonna go off of the big screen here to see where we are. So you wanna create a learning environment. Learning is critical to company success. Employee resources, you have to train them. Uh, the training literature has some mixed results, but 
uh, training should include um, some certain factors involved, but many times employees like that and they want the opportunity to get and receive training on the job through their organization or company. You can use basic skill instruction, integrate it into it, and then uh, how they, they can better do their job, you know. So any way you can improve their performance, you know, build on their current knowledge and uh, offer them opportunities for advancement. That is also a desirable feature in the workplace. So in designing the training, uh, employees need to know why they, they should learn. The objectives are like other behavioral objectives and can contain the expectation of their performance, a criterion, and conditions under which they're expected to perform uh, the desired outcome of the training. So, you know, you need ha to have clear objectives, design that allows employees to draw on their background, opportunities for practice, uh, feedback, learn by watching others, training program to be, uh, to be pro properly coordinated and arranged, uh, you know, the learning environment, providing the materials and other important factors. So you want to have transfer of training and using the skills uh, learned in the training back into the work environment. This is, of course, that generalization is critical uh, for this to be successful. And so you set the climate for the transfer, encourage and set goals for trainees, new skills and behaviors acquired in the training, characteristics of their job uh, prop, prop uh, to use the new skill and behavior acquired in that training and support application of the skills. Uh, so those are important factors. Avoid punishment. Not a good idea to do that in a workplace. That's a good way to lose an employee. Remove obstacles. Use intrinsic reinforcement. And uh, that's uh, also critical. Um, Aubrey Daniels talks about um, financial incentives being the most powerful reinforcer you've got in the workplace. Other things can be uh, added. However, that is essential. Um, tie their performance to... Um, chances for advancement and, um, you know, as well as financial uh, incentive with it. So these are just a few uh, references here. I referenced a couple of the um, books by Aubrey Daniels that I highly recommend, Bringing Out the Best in People, one of his most well-known ones, but also Performance Management, which gets, gets a lot into how to arrange these approaches and methods for staff in your workplace. Because I've done it, usually performance management with my clinical staff in in settings where I've been with a large um, number of behavior analysts and psychologists and so on. And we set goals and have everyone set their goals for improvement and to engage in better practices, evidence-based practices, keep up with current methods and the literature and so on as a way to help improve uh, our services. Uh, so you can always email me for any more information or questions that you have. I'll be glad to help out and offer you other resources. And I thank you for your time. Okay, uh, that was excellent. Both gentlemen, I, I really appreciate it. I probably have a few things that I could ask, but if any of the audience, if you have any questions, uh, go ahead and um, you can chat it in there or you can uh, unmute yourself. And it depends on how much time our speakers have that we could... Uh, we could uh, answer these, but uh, if you uh, have something to ask, either uh, Joe or Mike, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself, and uh, you can turn the video on if you if you want to, and then uh, ask your question or put it in the chat. And I'll just give a, a few minutes. I have a couple things I'd like to ask, but I'll give you anyone a chance if they want to ask something. 
uh, Mike, I am curious about uh, behavioral interviewing. Um, what what does that that sounds intriguing? What does that entail? Uh, well, yeah, and uh, it's a little bit of a twist or switch on uh, normal interviewing, where you're just saying, looking at someone's resume and say, okay, what have you done in the past? You know, and uh, what kind of experiences you had, and other perhaps um, you know qualifications, training, and so on. That's the more traditional approach to interviewing. In behavioral interviewing, what you're doing is in advance, and you do it with a group. So it's a group interview. I know I've used it, and I've also been uh, the recipient of it uh, okay. in, in, in interviews as well myself. So I've been on both sides of it, uh, and it's, it's, it's a bit challenging to be interviewed that way, but it's really very effective. So what you're doing in advance is everybody on your team, and it could be from different parts of the organization, different um, people in, in the uh, company from different divisions or whatever, the owner or the boss or the you know president or whatever, and then the clinicians maybe, maybe you have people from other divisions, residential, if you have that piece of it, school, so on, and they come in and you come up with um, some um, vignettes, if you will, or, or you know, um, set, set up some uh, mock kind of um, role plays mm-hmm. and you create a situation and then you present it to that person and say, okay, let's say you're in here and it's related to the job they're expected to do, of course. So mm-hmm. it's a clinician or whatever. Okay, here's the situation that you're faced with. What do you do? And, mm-hmm. you know, you set it up for them and then you hear their answer. So they, if they can fake their, their uh, resume credentials. Yeah, I've done that before. Mm-hmm. But if you put them on the spot and make them actually answer it, mm-hmm. they actually have to answer it correctly. And they can't um, squirm their way or kind of fib their way out of that one. And so they have to know their stuff. I, I know one time we were interviewing someone. We started a program for uh, an art therapy program for adults, which I was a little, kind of, okay, all right, we're going to do this. And someone who was a, a, had art therapy credential, they had a master's in fine arts or whatever, but they also claimed to have clinical knowledge. And we um, mentioned with some very challenging individuals, if they were in the art studio and start to destroy things or whatever, what would you do? And her, her answer almost it floored me uh, because she knew exactly what to do. Uh-huh. I was very impressed. If I hadn't, if we hadn't set up the scenario and asked her, I would have been skeptical of her qualifications. She and so that told me that wow, she's she's got this. She's going to handle this, and she knows the clinical end of it as well as her art artist part of it. For just as an example, you know, and I know I've been put on the spot as well in those situations with large groups. Well, what would you do with this situation? I had to deal with a job where we had unions, and like, what if the union called you and they said you can't do this or whatever, how would you handle that with a union or, you know, a lot of staff who might not like what you're telling them to do and so on, or or, or those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. So that's the big difference. And I find it to be very helpful and useful in identifying uh, potential employees who are actually competent and knowledgeable in for the job that they're, um, you know, applying for. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the big difference. I don't know if Joe had any other thoughts on that one, but well, well, um, we uh, usually when I go ahead, Joe, go ahead. Oh, usually when I was in the old days setting up behavioral interviews, I would ask them questions about how they have handled it in the past rather than leave it as an abstract question. So I present this in a scenario, 
you're in a room with a child and he starts throwing the desk over and starts kicking things. Mm-hmm. Handled situations like this before, right? Um, and so by getting them to draw more on the background of experience than some esoteric list of what they believe should be done that they'll probably not follow. People learn to speak of the game, and the thing is to get them away from the game speaking mm-hmm. to what they would actually do. You really want to get something that ties into how they'll actually perform in those kinds of situations. It used to be a fun workshop. We used to do this at Abbott's. I was with the brand. You know what's missing from all these workshops is is the practice. And mm-hmm. when we used to do this at, at Abbott, we used to do a particular thing like create a boss. Uh, to do something like, um, okay, think about, uh, do a functional analysis of a flow, business flow in your, uh, in your organization. And this was all stuff we did breakout groups for. Right. Yeah, because those were actual workshops that we were doing. And so we made them very interactive and had all kinds of role play and activities think, that mm-hmm. they could do in their breakout groups. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because those are really kind of fun things most to do. Of our, most of our workshop was breakout. Yeah, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to leave them with practical skills they could do when they got back home. Yeah, on behavior. Oh, yeah, that's what people want from workshops. What what can they take away and use yeah. later? You know? That's what they'll remember okay. in college for the uh, for the counselors in in college with for the uh, people interviewing. Uh, for the residence hall, we did a mock thing where I pretended like I was going to kill myself. I was a student that was thinking about suicide, and oh uh, uh, some of them were, uh, and they come in, oh, okay, uh, you know, how are you going to do it? And uh, sometimes it surprised me how well they handled the situation, but on a few occasions, you know, you'd get over with the interview and say, okay, and shake the guy's hand, and the and the interviewee's hand was just dripping with sweat. By the time we got to the end of that, of that, uh, they they were fine until we did the role play. Then it really put pressure on them that this could be a, a real thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Making a realistic interview is actually good because then it gives people a chance to say, "This isn't the job for me." Uh-huh. It is. You should right. never undercut the horrors of the job just as well as you should never undercut the excitement and the joy for the job in an interview uh-huh. a good comprehensive interview allows them to experience both so that they themselves can make that decision is this the case for me yeah you know yeah. i had an old professor that once told me he says when you go out there and look for a job look at the people who've been in that position for 20 years because that's what you're going to look like in 20 years (laughs) and then decide, Um, do you want to look like that? (laughs) uh, Can I mention a few things perhaps to the folks who had signed up for CEs and didn't get the, you know, their their login to a little little late. Um, That's because for some reason those didn't come to me. I don't know why they came into our um, person at our organization who's actually our marketing person and sent those to me that it was coming in um, but rest assured that you will get your full CE credits when you send the evaluation and you know your document uh, the verification that's on the site uh, but maybe also, like you could get people who are on the phone to somehow tell you their names so that you know who's oh, on the that would be nice too yeah, yeah. Uh, also this is being recorded right um, yes yeah we're yeah, recording so that, so that also, if you missed any part of Joe's presentation, you'll be able to access the recording at a later point as well. So you will get the full 
uh, presentation uh, either way, and uh, you will get your, your CE credits as well, okay? So, yeah, uh, yeah. a few people on, on Facebook have asked about it, so uh, that stuff will get sorted out. Uh, I know you gave me some names, Mike, and I emailed him, and... Um, We'll be able to okay. uh, we'll be able to sort it out. Yeah, well, uh, eventually I'll get this video up, and then an audio version of it will be on uh, the podcast uh, Criminal Behaviorology. Does anybody else have any further questions, or or Mike, you have anything? Is that how you're going to get folks the link to the the session is to through uh, your site? Place you have I, I think I can or? I can put the video up on our, our Facebook page unless you have if there's another venue I'll have it if there's another venue to put it up on. Is it, I'll, is I'll it your Facebook page on criminal yeah. behavioral? Yeah, what it's, it is? it's a specific page for uh, novel applications of ABA. It's for this webinar series. Maybe you want to type that yeah. in for everyone to see. I, it, I had so they, I had put it in earlier, but I'll I'll put oh, it in you again. Did. Okay, okay. Uh, I just want to make sure everyone's able to easily access it. Yeah, it's when, about uh, it's uh, right there. about seven oh nine. I put that uh, Facebook page. It comes in as a link. It's uh, yeah, uh, okay. Facebook dot com slash novel applications. You should sounds do. good. Uh, you know. yeah, put up some of the live links too that I had in, in case people want to look up some articles. For instance. Yeah. And yeah. and the and uh, the slides as well. We'll uh, we'll get the slides as a link uh, up, usually on a like a Google uh, Google site to put the slides up there, um, if I may, gentlemen. So uh, to so everybody can have the slides. And uh, I put our email information up there too, if they want to get get with Great. us. Great. Great. Okay. Okay. Well, a little rough beginning, but uh, okay. I think uh, <laughs> a, a, at least the presenters can speak, and that's what I care about. And. Uh, <laughs> um, Okay, so I see. Uh, somebody asked something. Uh, oh yeah, somebody give a one person I know is given a. a uh, yeah, they she had a uh, uh, about a mock about another employee uh, disagreeing with me. That's a good mock interview to do when you're work working with somebody and they oh. disagree with you. Uh, yeah. 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 So there, right. there I can handle is. that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Any other questions from the audience? One quick yes. question. Okay, Hi. Shannon, go ahead. Hi, it's Shannon. Okay. Hey, uh, Shannon. How are you? Hey. I'm good. How are you doing? We're um, hanging so, in there. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, the performance diagnostic checklist and the picnic and all those kinds of assessment tools for OBM. Uh-huh. Um, but I've always had more success doing, like, just kind of unstructured interview and observations. Is there an OBM tool that's like the FAI where it kind of like guides you through what to ask, but isn't just like a checklist that you're aware of? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I, I, I don't know of any uh, general forms like that. There might be, I don't know. Did Joe, do you know of anything like that that's available? The observational stuff. If you look up the Western Michigan model of uh, the functional assessment, it gives you a semi-structured interview that you can do. So they are questions, but they're not like forced choice responses that you can guide through it. And yeah. also tells you how to do your observation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Good question. Anyone else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or for, that would be an interesting tool or a good one to develop if there isn't one. Yeah, it's <laughs> a know, good, uh, good... It might be, good, right, right. Good, good project yeah. to develop, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, uh, Joe, I, I was going to ask about like the, the ones where you had the IQ gains. I wasn't really clear. Did they, did they maintain over time? Uh, they, no. they, I think they had one slide that they did. They simply just did not maintain. Yeah, nothing maintained. Uh, in the Westinghouse study, five years after they were down, we saw the decrease in IQ scores five years ago. Yeah. No model produced a permanent IQ change. Okay. That's been my skeptical about when they say, well, the autistic kids had an IQ change. I was always a little skeptical that they really had an IQ change or were they nonverbal and now you were using the nonverbal IQ and now you've augmented it because you're always giving them verbal IQ tests. Yeah. There are nonverbal IQ tests like the Tony. Yeah. Uh, the C Tony is a nonverbal IQ test. IQ stores, by, to be honest with you, IQ stores get very stable after the age of five to mm -hmm. seven. Seven, they become really stable. Nine, they're pretty much what you want to be when you're 60. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just is one of those kinds of uh, kind of instruments where uh, you don't get much change. Although I am seeing it, like you said, that the peak ABA people are claiming high score increases, IQ increases uh, for their kids with autism mm -hmm. through teaching relational responding uh, and teaching yeah. them to be comparing and contrasting. So there are techniques that you can do. Mm -hmm. The question becomes is, is do they really – they may produce academic behavior, but do they change this thing we call IQ, which is kind of a hard thing to put your finger on yeah. because it's supposed to be yeah. a capacity uh, to measure. And there's a lot of racial bias in IQ scores. Uh, there's not there's cultural biases in IQ scores. Mm -hmm. See that um, first-generation immigrant to second-generation immigrant, it's like a 20-point jump in IQ score. Don't think that was genetic. You know, the parent comes in, he's 20 points lower than the kid. Well, mm -hmm. I kind of think that that probably had to yeah. do more with it. came from a non-English speaking country. You know, it was actually used in immigration uh, back in the early 1900s to argue against immigration from Italy and mm -hmm. um, some of the other places, even Ireland. Some yeah. And how do they ferret all that? They sort all that out because, I mean, you, you could have educational improvement. You could have nutritional improvement, uh, pre better prenatal care. I mean, there's all these factors. By the time you look at something like average difference in groups and IQ scores, it seemed like a very hard thing to sort out what, what would be the cause. All right. Right. It gets hard. Um, like I said, though, the thing with IQ is it gets stable. But when you say something as stable as predicting future performance, yeah, what you're yeah. saying is we're, re we're reaffirming the status quo. And, right. <laughs> and, 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 and how much can you really push the, the performance beyond one standard deviation uh, as well? I mean, is it within the standard deviation or yeah. other? And that's a pretty hard task to, to accomplish. No, but I agree with Mike on that. That's why if you look at instruments like uh, a lot of people like to use the violin on scales like that, those instruments, a 55 on the violin is learning because he has to maintain 55. It's going through the curriculum like a 55. In other words, if you get a violin in your social skills, you're picking up new social skills, socialization. You're socializing just at a 55 or else your score would actually fall further behind because you have to get more right as it's aged. So as you get older. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So the idea is a 55 goes through life like a 55 on the violin. Now, the problem is, that, though, is 
a lot of behavior analysts bank their programs on, oh, we build skills. Well, you could build a lot of skills and a 55 on the violence stays at 55. You get what I'm saying? Unless you do teaching of the test and you're just then breaking the standards. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like running on a treadmill. You have to work really hard to catch up and go ahead. You yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Any other questions from the audience? Jeopardy music? Uh, Joe, do you want to put you want to put a uh, email contact in the chat? Uh, Michael has. Uh, you just type uh, to everyone to the chat, and then they'll have that uh, information if they want to email you. Uh, we are. Uh, he's got a yeah, Joe Cotilli two zero zero three yahoo.com. That's a uh, Joe, uh, and Mike's got uh, yeah. Let's the e-link again, yeah, just this, in case they need it. There you go. There's this uh, that ties it all in. Yeah, uh, it does. Any any other thoughts, anyone? Okay. okay. It's been great, gentlemen. It's uh, really informative. Our purpose is to get uh, work as hard as we can to get other areas of uh, of uh, access to the use of ABA uh, education, training, employment, whatever. Uh, there's a whole world out there, and, and I think we can accomplish that. So, Great. Yeah, really enjoyed it. That was great. Thank okay. you all. Thank you so much. Thanks, to everyone, for coming. Okay, and we will take care, take care everyone. Thank you. Oh, okay. if anybody has future topics, maybe they can just give them to Timothy and see where we go. Yeah, Good idea. absolutely. And I hope to have you guys again sometime. I'm glad right. to do it. I had to do it. Hey, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. No problem. Take care. Take care now. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.